This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Reskinning history. Kremlinology. Lovecraftian spam. And Whitley Streber. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Ken and Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardus to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. When Robin and I say things, as we always do, there are some things that we say so often that they become things we always say, and a thing I always say has attracted the attention of Patreon backer John Corey. Because this is an all-Patreon backer episode. uh, It is. It is. But in this particular case, this Patreon backer has been drawn to something I always say. Hence the lead-in. Right. And in fact, making this the segment... Things I always say. That thing I always say. And what thing that you always say is John Corey asking about, Ken? John Corey asks, and in a model of uh, question framing, by the way, I have heard Ken say that there is no better setting than the real world and real world history. I have also heard him say that reskinning historical stories in new genres is uninteresting. What is the trick of marrying these two ideas successfully, as Ken did in Keylong? Now, see, note how he did that. He's questioning something I always say by invoking my own genius. That's the way to question the thing I always say, Robin. Essentially, he's saying, you've transcended, apparently, the thing that you always say. And so rather than, you know, implying that there's some sort of internal contradiction or paradox, he's merely asking how you go about doing that. Right. And I guess for those who do not know, I should begin by saying Keylong is my OSR Dungeons and Dragons style setting for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. It's a, a, a wet, deadly sandbox, basically. It's based on Cambodia during the Vietnam War. The geography of it is based on not the easternmost province of Cambodia that was actually involved in the Vietnam War, but the westernmost province of Cambodia. And the monsters and mythology and magic are also based strongly or loosely, depending on the needs of the product, on Cambodian uh, mysticism and Cambodian myth and folklore. So it's it's pretty darn nestled into a historical setting. It's just a different historical setting because 
Uh, there's no machine guns in Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and there's no helicopters, and there's no lots of things. But what I thought was the lived experience of living next to a worse war and having it still destroy your country is the sort of thing that a D&D style uh, quest adventure could profitably go through. And this is basically your Apocalypse Nows, your Valhalla's Rising, your middle war episodes in uh, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, all of that element of passing through something inestimably worse and uh, never getting off the boat, as they say in Apocalypse Now. So that was the, the goal with, with Keelong, was to present something that felt Cambodian while not necessarily being 17th century Cambodia, which, as far as I know, was no worse than any other century of Cambodia and certainly didn't have an enormous destructive magical war happening on the on the frontier. And without obviously being simply 1970s Cambodia or 1960s Cambodia, in which I would have had to A, be constrained by actual history and B, not be able to make it a D&D product or a Lamentations of the Flame Princess project. So the immediate goal was, um, uh, the immediate trick, I guess, was having a really, really clear vision of what I wanted the, the setting to be and then having to fit it into Dungeons and Dragons, Lamentations of the Flame Princess type space. Right. And I mean, that that's the beginning of the trick. Like all tricks, you're sort of forced by necessity in doing it. I didn't have any particular interest in just exploring, you know, random Cambodia. I had that specific Cambodia that I wanted to make the setting about. And then the rest was just finding great things in Cambodia that were scary, which it turns out, like all cultures, Cambodia has produced lots of things people are terrified of over the, over the years. And you can just insert them in as you go. And then some of it was just things that I uh, mentioned some of the visual and cinematic inspiration. Some of it was just taking stuff from other things. For example, there's a element on the random encounter chart of peasants who will knock you on the head and steal your armor or wait for you to tumble into a pit and steal your armor or shove you into a pit and steal your armor. Those are from Onibaba, which is a great Japanese horror film, but it's one that is super unwatched, I guess, uh, certainly amongst the uh, the gamer crowd. Yeah, it's a, a brilliant film. It's on Criterion. Everyone go track that down. Absolutely. Uh, but as opposed to, say, putting a Sarlacc into Cambodia, where everyone would say, oh, that's a Sarlacc. I get it. If I put armor stealers from Onibaba, it's, uh, first of all, it's organic to the setting because that also takes place in a war-torn, desolate countryside, much like my, uh, my fictive Keelong. But it's also... It's new and, and interesting and sort of grows out of the out of the peasantry in a way that the Sarlacc not necessarily does. So one of the things that you always say or is implied here that you always say is that reskinning history is generally uninteresting. Why do you why would you say that it is normally uninteresting? Because normally uh, what you get and the the exception and the example both come out of David Drake. If you look at David Drake's work, a huge bunch of it, uh, certainly the. Uh, Royal, uh, not Royal, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy uh, series is based on weird little sidelights from classical history. And one of the things that makes that fun and good is that there is a, there's a lot of classical history. There's a lot of really obscure classical history that nobody knows. And Drake takes it and rotates it a lot of different directions rather than just sticking with retelling with one bunch being the Seleucids and one bunch being the Romans. And you're like, okay, battle of Magnesia. I know how this is going going to come out. He usually takes more obscure things. And then sometimes his heroes are the Romans and sometimes his heroes, are the Carthaginians. It just really depends on which way the story is going to work. So that is more interesting, a way to do it. And it's a better way to do it because you're still taking the story 
um, uh, elements out of it without necessarily slavishly following a, a familiar plot that is more interesting when it is, uh, it is told by the original historian usually, or at least by looking it up and figuring out the original uh, story. So the difference then is reskinning here is just taking things and making one-to-one correspondences into your game. So it's like you're not changing enough so that it's recognizable to anybody who knows the source material that you're drawing from, and also the correspondences can become rickety and strange. Right. And the counterexample is also David Drake. There's a novel that he wrote called Patriots, which is a perfectly fun little novel about a a space rebellion, but it is a direct one-to-one copy of Ethan Allen's rebellion against the hated British. And if you've read Ethan Allen's life and you've read anything about Ethan Allen, you sort of see all of Patriots coming and all that it has going for it, which is not insubstantial, is Drake's ability to write good battle scenes, which is fine. But again, you know everything that's going to happen, and it's fundamentally a much less interesting novel, even than his other historical ripoffs. And I would argue those are less interesting than the ones where he's taking, you know, incidents from his his career in Vietnam, or he's taking other things that he just made up and turning those into uh, sort of full-bore uh, inventive plots. So that is sort of the, the reason not to do it is because if you're just going to reskin Ethan Allen in space, everyone is who's read Ethan Allen is going to say, I just would like rather read about Ethan Allen. Thanks. Right. If we're going to talk about Ethan Allen all day. Now there's a big constituency of people who don't want to read anything about someone with a powdered wig, wouldn't read a historical novel, but if you, you know, give them spaceships and laser guns, they're in. No, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I, I occasionally will read things that are uninteresting merely because I like other elements of it. And for example, I read Patriots. So right. there you go. Um, and so the, I guess the equivalent in gaming would be if you know that you are players, nobody knows the story of, of Columbus in your group that you could just reskin that with, uh, you know, into a um, modern alternate world history game with superpowers and nobody would catch the references and you can rip it off pretty easily. But as soon as the light goes on and someone, you know, you suddenly discover that one of your players has, in fact, recently <laughs> read a biography of Columbus, then the gears start to show and they can then manipulate that. And so I guess the difference is Keylong draws inspiration from initially that idea of Cambodia. But as you've already indicated, if there's another little thing that you can pluck from elsewhere, uh, you will plug that in as well, as you did with Onibaba. And right. so I think that rich worlds that, that do draw on uh, that real cultures for their imaginary cultures, it, I think, really profits them to draw from multiple sources in order to uh, have it become a work of sort of speculative sociology or speculative uh, anthropology or, or however you want to look at it in terms of we're taking the basic building blocks of cultures and politics and uh, the way that uh, people interact and form a culture together, and we're taking bits and pieces as we would from a box of Legos and putting them back together in a new form that is interesting in its own right and is has a virtue of not being recognizable as just a, you know, oh, here's the samurai in this world. Okay, yeah, samurai, that's cool. And the other advantage, I guess, that you have as a, as a game designer is that unlike poor David Drake, if I want to write a game that is about Vermont between uh, the French and Indian Wars and the American Revolution 
or between 1757 and 1787, I can make a game about the New Hampshire grants and Ethan Allen and all manner of things. But because the players are playing the characters, they're playing the Ethan Allens and Seth, uh, I forget his name, the other guy, the, the less Ethan Allen of the Green Mountain Boys. If uh, the players are playing them, they're the ones who are going out and having adventures. And I can put Fort Ticonderoga there, fat and undefended, and I know that the players will attack it. But unless the players are saying, we should do exactly as Ethan Allen did at all times. You're not as likely to have that sort of, Oh, seen this, done this. So my uh, reskinning historical stories is uninteresting is more true. I feel for fiction than it is for gaming. And obviously, you know, you can, I'm a big fan of setting things in actual history. I'm running a campaign right now in actual history. So the argument that, Oh, we know who's going to win the election isn't, as compelling if your players are not actually trying to um, monkey with the election. And even if they are, there is a certain breed of mind, mine prominent among them, that finds it super fun to figure out what the secret historical manipulations were behind Grover Cleveland becoming president, as opposed to, you know, saying, oh, we've got to stop Grover Cleveland at all costs, and then failing because, oh, look at that, history says he's going to be president. That is uninteresting because you've taken agency out of the players' hands. But if the players' uh, sort of meta goal is to figure out the secret historical uh, forces, the magic and Templars and such that made Grover Cleveland president, then that becomes interesting and fun because you're exploring as opposed to trying to alter history, I guess. Right. And as soon as you start nerd trumping history, as, as soon as you add real magic or give people superpowers or, you know, add space aliens, whatever that is, you are immediately already in an alternate history. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so uh, there's no guarantee, uh, and the players, I think, understand that intuitively, even if you don't spell it out, that what they're uh, doing is going to remain on uh, track in terms of what they know uh, for uh, historical reality. In my campaign right now, Doc Holliday has been shot. So already we're in a terrifying alternate history. Anything can happen. If Doc Holliday doesn't have plot immunity, nobody does. And was that like a big moment when everyone went, "Uh oh, we're in uncharted territory," or is that just everybody's assumption? It was a it was a big moment because they they shot Doc Holliday and he ascended, and so that was a big moment just for the for the fact of of seeing that happen. But also, it's it's a signpost to the players. They they did not um, immediately take it as their chance to go murder Grover Cleveland in his sleep or something. They've they've only killed one president so far. I'm trying to keep that number down. Right, and so also by taking something uh, a game with a uh, a pre-existing game with a strong series of tropes like F20 or OSR, if if, if you want to drill down even further, that that just the fact that you're taking history and then putting it in that very particular bundle uh, that shapes things considerably. You know, you're you're taking a, a real world history and now you have to figure out what paladins have to do with it. That's mm -hmm. already uh, there's more than just reskinning going on because there are so many basic core elements of a D and D ish experience that uh, affect any setting and change the way any setting uh, looks and feels. That already it's more than a reskinning. It's already you're mashing together uh, two things that need a lot of reconciling uh, even before you start adding little bits of. Japanese classic film into your Cambodian inspired setting. Yeah. And there the cheat I think is to do what I did in Keelong and make sure it's a setting in flux, not a setting that's stable because as you know, you quite easily can figure out maintaining a standard issue feudal Europe 
in a world with fireball and resurrection is super hard. Whereas maintaining the 30 years war in a world with fireball and resurrection is pretty much a day at the races. Anyone can do that because Germany's already been blown up. There's nothing that murder hobos can do that makes it worse. And the other, you know, you know, if you look around, sadly, history is not short of places that murder hobos cannot make worse. Right. Because history is, is much less aspirational than yeah. a D&D campaign. <laughs> and so yes. as soon as you're, you know, you want to make dark D&D, add real history to it, folks. Yes. Which is one of the reasons that I think a lot of people don't want real history as a setting because they uh, don't want somewhere as horrible as uh, our real uh, planet that we've lived on for uh, X uh, thousands of years. And uh, they don't want to reflect on what humans really uh, do to one another. And they want something that is uh, more aspirational and fun and that's something that you can dial up and dial down you've in this case chosen to focus on an incredibly dark chapter of uh, recent history but you can another way that you can reskin history is just to make it nicer <laughs> well that's one of the advantages of working with uh james Raggi at lamentations is james is a big believer that you know your game is not dark enough darken it up so much as i as i did when i worked for white wolf my goal is to make him regret those words um and i haven't done it yet but you know i'll it's not my last project for james and we'll see what happens but it is it is in a way i don't want to say liberating but it's ex more exciting to try and make a game that as people play it, they are engaged with the darkness and awfulness of it than a game where they can sort of shut that away and say, well, that's over the mountains in Mordor here in the Shire. Everything is pipe weed and hell and around. Whereas of course they're in the actual historical Shire. Everything was Irishmen being beaten until they built railroads. So it's not the same thing at all. Right. And uh, I, I sense an entire new topic developing, which is uh, a thing we <laughs> nip in the bud here on Ken and Rob and Talk About Stuff. So, a thing we always nip in the bud. Yeah. So let's do that and head uh, to our next segment. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. The retinal scan that you undertook before you were allowed to listen to this segment inform you that once more we are in the top secret precincts of the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around on Tradecraft Hut, 
Simon Hedge has a question for uh, Ken to consider. Uh, you may notice... Uh, Patreon hum- backer, Simon Hedge. Patreon backer, of course, yes. You may notice, humble listeners, that I have cleverly set up the script for this episode so that Ken does all the talking and I do some kibitzing. That's because I'm packing for a trip. So <laughs> <laughs> let's make Ken do the, uh, the Well done, Robin. Well done indeed. Indeed, yes. The power of the script. Uh, so Simon Hedge, a Patreon backer Simon Hedge, uh, asked for a 101 on Kremlinology. Uh, and then he's got some, uh, I think, some follow-up questions. But 101 on Kremlinology uh, should be enough to get you started, shouldn't it? It should. Kremlinology began as the term that people used to describe trying to figure out what was up with the commies. Back in the old days of the Soviet Union, uh, it was a closed society. The only thing that got out officially was things that they wanted to get out. So Pravda and Izvestia and other sort of announcements of the party. Um, the glorious Bulgarian workers representative has been greeted in Kiev by the glorious undercommissar for talking to Bulgarians type stuff. And they, and the CIA and other interested parties in academia and elsewhere would pour through these official pronouncements to attempt to determine what was actually going on inside the Kremlin, inside the reading between the lines of the wheat reports. Exactly. Uh, inside the, the, the Soviet party structure and the Politburo to sort of figure out who was actually in charge and who was going to do stuff. And was the state stable? Was the state, you know, in trouble? You know, it was uh, big doings happening. And the classic sort of illustration of Kremlinology is every May Day, all of the Soviet bureaucrats, all of the Politburo would line up on the wall of the Kremlin and wave to the tanks and missiles as they drove by. You know, hello, tanks and missiles. Hello, destroy capitalism. Hello. And the order in which they stood was a fairly rigid hierarchy. And if a guy moved down the ranks and was farther from the best viewing spot, they figured he has gotten himself in trouble, and so the underminister for culture is now way less important than he was last yeah. May Day. Just stand in the org chart, fellas. Exactly. That won't give away anything. And I mean, and as far as we know, the Soviets never gamed that. They never said, "Okay, you're super important, but stand at the far end." I think if you wanted to game it, you just had a bad cold on May Day and didn't show up at the wall. But of course, then we were always thinking, "Oh, he's been purged." Yes. So no, no human system <laughs> in which there's a tight hierarchy is anyone going to give up the chance their one chance to show where they are in the hierarchy just to fool a bunch of uh, enemies that's right. that is not going to happen and so that sort of becomes the proof case or the thing that everyone knows about kremlinology but a lot of it is very very boring stuff like parsing the wheat reports and figuring out why did this message come from kiev instead of from moscow or why did this a uh, column in Pravda get printed until last Tuesday and who was backing that column and lots of very, very deep in the weeds type stuff. And it is, you know, the term is now used for any sort of closed society or, or closed organization. So now there's, you know, jokes about Supreme Court Kremlinology because of course the Supreme Court classically does not publicize its uh, debates or even the process by which it takes cases. And so you have to sort of look and say, Hmm, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's looking a little irritated. Maybe they took that case about labor unions that she didn't want. And then you, you can't really figure it out until the Supreme Court makes their announcements. And so you have this sort of approach being used for all manner of closed or uh, secretive power structures. You've prefigured uh, one of Simon's uh, follow-up questions, which is, is it still practiced today? Presumably it is not practiced 
in the same way or is not literally as arcane as it once was. But if you listen to, say, the, the Power Vertical podcast in which uh, Mark Galliotti and uh, uh, other experts on Russia try and figure out what the heck is going on, there's still a level of opaqueness to what is going on in any authoritarian uh, political setup, because whenever uh, things come down to the decisions of one man and his circle of sycophants, you have to do a lot of guessing to figure out what the heck is going on. As to which sycophant is on top. Yes. And that is an example of, of a place where Kremlinology is coming back into vogue because Putin's Russia, while far more open than Stalin's Russia, uh, or even Andropov's Russia, is still pretty closed in all the ways that you would really like to have if you're betting on where they're going to drop their uh, next friendly um, uh, peacemaking force yes. in the Middle East, for if example. If there's a direction Russia's headed, it's not toward better. <laughs> no, not currently. Um, uh, we can we can only hope that it's uh, plateauing or leveling off or whatever you want to call it in eh, as opposed to god awful. Yeah. But the um, but the question well, once of, he runs the White House, he'll he'll have yeah, so much to much do simpler. that he'll, we can he'll just mellow ask, out. We can just ask Donald Trump what uh, what's going on, and he'll tell us that really that's that's a great argument for something. Um, where were we? How, how about we move on to another of the follow up questions, which right. is. Uh, was it ever useful? Did uh, Was Kremlinology mostly just sort of trying to find nuggets in the uh, wheat reports, but just uh, disappearing down a rabbit hole? Or were there uh, instances where information was gleaned that was useful in uh, foreign policy? Well, the, uh, the Germans, as is their way, uh, used to call it uh, Kremlastrology, which I think will give <laughs> you an indication of what the sort of general consensus is. And I think it's a little unfair to Kremlinology to say that, but it is, it is absolutely true, jokes, it, but it is absolutely, and, and they have so few, and it's absolutely true that much like the stock market, if, if you've got someone who is a, a bear, they are going to read the exact same thing in the stock market and come out and say, well, we should all be bearish. Everyone sell. This is a bad news. Everything's going to hell. And if you're a bull, you read the same news and you come out and you say, nope, everything's super fine. And you see that politically, obviously, as, you know, Paul Krugman's policy uh, prescriptions remain remarkably the same, regardless of what the markets are doing and who he's blaming for things again, remains remarkably the same regardless. So you can very easily, as CIA analysts, as academics did, use Kremlinology and say, look, that proves that Andropov is a monster who's going to destroy everything, or that proves that Andropov is a wonderful fellow who we just have to get to know better. And every now and again, someone would be right, but that's just because we had a broad variety of academics. And if, you know, every one of, if one of them has said, Every, you know, for example, there's an old joke that, uh, that Robert Reich has produced, has predicted, uh, nine of the last two recessions. So you have a similar thing with, um, uh, Stephen Cohen, who had predicted nine of the last two Soviet warmings. And so, um, <laughs> ev if every time you're like, this guy's going to open up a new relationship with the West and you say it every time, eventually you get a Gorbachev and he's like, I was right. And it's like, well, you were saying you, you were a stop clock, pal. So you have similar things going on. With Kremlinology, the means by which you derive information is more, is no more or less sound than any other way of figuring out what's going on. Obviously, the guys lining up on the Kremlin wall is pretty sound, but there's a limit to what you can understand by where the culture minister is standing versus are the tanks going to roll into Poland or are they not going to roll into Poland? And that is not going to be decided by where is the defense minister on the Kremlin wall because it's the same tanks regardless of who's in charge. 
Right. And uh, ironically, the great breakthrough in the Cold War came from U.S. Uh, guys, the intelligence guys in the uh, Reagan administration. Who was the CIA head at that time? Um, Bill Casey. Bill Casey. He thought that uh, the Soviets were on a huge military buildup when, in fact, they were crumbling. But the uh, decisions made on the basis of that mistake were the things that uh, then led the uh, Soviets to kind of throw in the towel. So it was like being wrong was uh, of more value than knowing what was going on. Yeah, it, it's, it, it basically goes to the argument that if your strategy is sound, it, it matters less what your opponent is doing. Certainly, if, if you don't care about what happens to Afghanistan or Czechoslovakia, it matters not at all what your opponent was doing, because we could be pretty sure they weren't going for a first strike, merely because that's not sound Marxist thinking. It turns out we had no idea how crazy Andropov was, which was sort of a relief at, at, uh, to me now, because um, uh, at the time I would have been super worried. It turns out uh, almost all authoritarian leaders are uh, <laughs> cracked in the head, and uh, that uh, causes problems for the rational actor theory. It does. It is always, the rational actor is always true in the textbooks and seldom anywhere else. Right. You might better start with what drug is this person on? Yes. <laughs> and what's which, the behavior pattern arising? What, what is what is likely? Do we think he's a Coke guy or a meth guy? Exactly. What, what do we think? And then you get a Hitler who's on a bunch of drugs and messes with you. Yes, he's confusing the... Uh, that's the stoned actor theory. That's right. Um, so I guess the, the closeout question then is, is of a bibliographical nature, which is what is the best book for those uh, who would like to know more about criminology? And I don't know that there is one best book. I did sort of dig around in my own back in the day when I minored in Soviet studies, because that was a evergreen field. Um, and then we got my master's degree right as the evil empire fell apart. So good for me. Speaking of um, decisions made on misinformation leading to a surprise results. Right. I'll take it. You know, I, I went down and I looked around and a lot of what I had is not Kremlinology. It's Soviet analysis who depend on Kremlinology for much of its decision-making. The How to Kremlinolog book is, you know, probably a manual somewhere in the CIA, and it involves doing a lot of terribly boring things like reading Pravda wheat reports all the time. I think the best sort of intro to it that lets you know, do I want to Kremlinolog, you know, myself, is, believe it or not, and I was as stunned as you are, a uh, four-part series in Stratfor, of all places. And what is Stratfor for the uninitiated? Stratfor is a company that purports to sell intelligence information to corporate clients, and I suppose to national clients who are even stupider than the corporate clients, if that can be believed. And what Stratfor is, is basically a smaller, <laughs> better-at-PR version of that segment of the CIA that does nothing but read open-source newspapers and guess. Uh, they do the same thing and they sort of, uh, sell themselves as, as super, uh, well connected and, and wired in and all this other stuff. And they're, they're reading, you know, financial times and guessing just like everyone else. But there's a, uh, a scholar, I guess you'd call him at, uh, Stratfor called Lauren Goodrich, I believe is who wrote, uh, Kremlinology, a four part series. And her argument is that even now, um, uh, it is useful to Kremlinolog against uh, Putin and figure out what's going on there. And so it's sort of a, here's what Kremlinology was in the past. Here's maybe how to do it today. And looking at uh, Putin, another good place is, as you say, uh, Mark Galliotti's podcast or his occasional um, uh, essays that you'll see thrown up on the web at ECR and other places. So um, I, again, I guess I have to say 
don't be a Kremlinologist, be a Kremlinologistologist and study the people who are claiming to Kremlinolog and then, you know, do what no one ever does to pundits and try and see if their past performance is worth you believing what they're going to say this time. Everyone's going to be right sometimes because people are cussed. Um, you know, even Tom Friedman might be right someday. It's not impossible. He's a young man. <laughs> so in uh, gaming or in fiction, the useful thing about uh, criminology, whether it's literally the Kremlin or a vampire conspiracy or, uh, you know, the a specter or whatever it is, is that you can have the guys in the suits give the player characters or the protagonists a dossier full of information with their best guess as to what is going on. And fiction uh, tells us that the hero can't know what's going on right from the jump. The hero only has to know enough to go and find more information. So that it makes perfect sense to say, okay, well, the Ordo Veritatis, we've got uh, some chatter. We've uh, got this uh, esoteric cell. We think uh, this is going on. But of course, we can't really tell because we're just basing this on a keyword test. And uh, But it's enough to send you out into the field. So that actually is really useful in terms of not avoiding the scene where the players then just ask the people giving them the assignment, you know, half an hour's worth of information, and that's uninteresting, and they don't really know what to ask, and they keep asking and asking. So it's like, well, this is our best guess. This is our, our criminologist. This is what they think is going on. But the one thing criminologists know is that they're always wrong because everything's always weirder the closer you get to it. So uh, get closer to it. Yeah. The, uh, again, you can even abstract that in Knights Black Agents, for example, you have a player who's got traffic analysis. It's like, well, you've been studying the uh, Russian uh, wheat reports in Pravda or not in Pravda now in, in on Russia today or whatever the official Putinist um, uh, mouthpiece is or the Chinese ones in global times. And uh, you, your best guess is that this guy, this under minister for food is probably in league with the vampires. And that's, that's just a, that's just a spend. And so now you have one guy whose office you can break into. You can grab him when he goes to Tokyo for the summit and torture him to get vampire information out of him or dump holy water on him and see if he smolders or whatever it is your plan is for dealing with the next guy up the chain. And so Kremlinology can be a way, um, that lets you find a target in the same way that psychological profiling, which also doesn't work, can be a way that your character can sort of skip the boring part and say, we think that that guy might fit the psychological profile. Why don't you go roust him and see what's up? And even if that guy's innocent, the act of rousting him gives you more information and clues and moves you along the story. So uh, speaking about moving along into the story, I think it's time that we moved on to our next segment. Hey, Ken. 
What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by patrons exactly like... Brendan Clarty. Jake Moss. Mark Giles. Paul Stefko. And Pedro Garcia. The clanking of chains, the clattering of bones, the eerie cackle of witches or people who are being tortured by witches tell us that we've once more entered the creepity confines of the horror hut. Horror hut. Where Brian, Patreon backer Brian, asks... What Lovecraftian spam would function as in a modern-day Trail of Cthulhu setting? Now, obviously, most of your spam comes from people who want to sell you stuff uh, based on a website you read and did not see the little box, or they are hot Russian teens in your area, many of them, I understand that, or other sort of weird personal services. But obviously, in a modern-day Lovecraftian thing, sometimes you get that word salad spam that's just trying to sort of fool your spam filter into letting it through so that you'll then click on the hot Russian teens. Right. But the word salad in a Lovecraftian, and it, it, frankly, in our world, if I saw a word salad that was full of Azathoth or something, I would probably read that word salad more carefully than if it's just obviously a bunch of gibberish pasted together from websites. In, in fact, strangely enough, the, the Canon Robin uh, comment section, when we periodically go through it to remove the, uh, or to, to disapprove the spam, yes. quite often it's like, this has a sort of an elliptonic tone to it. If they just run it through the AI one more time, it would seem like a an actual pertinent comment to our yes. show. Yes, and then we would be happy to buy knockoff NFL jerseys. We would right. not actually be happy, but still, yeah, it is... You know, as the as the AIs get um, uh, or the expert systems get better and they get cheaper, I suspect we will all of us be seeing spam that is looking eerily tailored to our interests in a way that it currently doesn't. Yeah. But in a Trail of Cthulhu setting, some of the spam might come from something darker than a guy in Russia who wants you to meet hot teens in your area. Right. And and I think you're right to suggest that in today's uh, internet environment, that the uh, good old fashioned Mail spam that used to get in your inbox has mostly been taken care of. It's mostly filtered out by uh, your service provider, and you probably rarely see it. You only see it when you know you missed your uh, password reset, and you have to go in and think, "Wow, this is a lot of spam in this folder." Um, <laughs> but as you suggest, there's a lot more spam-like things 
uh, as uh, people, you know, the, the war for people's attention span continues to expand. And so that what we might be looking at here is something more like a haunted Facebook ad or, you know, a fake follow on Facebook. And I guess one of the first things we have to address is if something weird is being randomly sent out to a, a ton of people, the way that, you know, that's how spam works, is that you flood the environment with your message and hope that, uh, you know, one out of uh, a thousand people respond to that. And it may be responding to that through several layers, right? Because a lot of that comment spam is just, a, it's you don't actually want people on the Ken and Robin site to be reading your spam. You don't care about that. You're just trying to up your CEO ranking in some way. But if it's a, a mythos group trying to up their CEO rating, that's still sinister. So I guess the first question we have to ask is, why would they be covert about it? If the effort is just to drive everyone on the planet insane, you would just upload, scan pages of the Necronomicon to or Twitter. Or King in Yellow, yeah. right? And, and then there you go. So there's a reason why it is uh, covert and uh, trying to, you know, lure in just a few people who actually respond to it in the right way. And what would you think that reason would be? Well, I mean, the first reason would be that they're trying to recruit people with the sort of special vision it takes to pick Haster or Azathoth or whatever out of the forest of spam. And in the same way that the Nigerian millionaire con game is trying to select for real idiots people who will honestly send money to Nigeria. And that's why it is so transparently idiotic. A mythosy spam may be trying to select for people who are really self damaging <laughs> and are willing to walk into uh, the, the pit of uh, 6,000 steps in Maine. Right. And they've already gone to 4chan and recruited almost everyone there. <laughs> yes, they're all gone. They still need some more. Still need some more idiots. The Shoggoths are always hungry. And so they're looking for people and, and again, in a, in a Lovecraftian world, they may not even know why they're typing in pieces of the revelations of Glocky or whatever, but the words themselves or the God that impelled the creation of those uh, words is fishing for more people to hook into their apperception and Yagalanak, uh, Ramsey Campbell's uh, beautiful, wonderful Yagalanak is always looking for deviants and weirdos so that um, it can assume their flesh and maybe one day get out of its brick prison that it lives in. I think Ugalanek may be like really exhausted in the internet age. It's just, oh, he's, oh, he's that, got a higher another, help. Oh, <laughs> that, that's what I, he's got to do. I can't get off his chair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ironically, Ugalanek is actually just looking at porn now. He's, he's, yeah. too, he's, he's too unmotivated to do anything. Well, actually he's just looking at the, we rate dogs feet. <laughs> yes. He's just looking at cute, cat videos because everything else is just too tiring. <laughs> well, good work. We rate dogs. Well done. Keeping you Galanak in his brick prison. You're doing the Lord's work. Anyway, where the hell were we? Um, right. So that's one possibility is they're trying to recruit people with this, with the ability to see another one might be that they're trying to fish for investigators that if you are a Yog Sothoth cult, you want to find all the Henry Armitages and stop them. And so, they may be, you know, lay, trailing a code or laying a false trail to draw in deliberately investigators and, and stop them. Another possibility is that they would be sending their message out because they are impelled to do so by dreams or whatever. They're creating, instead of great art like Henry Wilcox, they're creating nonsensical spam messages. And you're not actually being drawn, but what that is, is it's a symptom that it's, oh, look, all of these comments on YouTube are suddenly mentioning the Sethagwa 
obviously Santagua is rising. And then that's like reading the chatter on, on the Al Qaeda sites or whatever. And it's like, Oh, we know there's terrorism actioning. Now we know it's Santagua cult is rising somewhere. Right. It could also mean that the text of these spam uh, comments aren't meant to be read and understood by anyone except those who have already been awakened to the mythos. So their communications, coded communications to cultists that uh, an ordinary cryptography can't break because they're not actually a code. They're a word salad that then uh, changes when viewed by someone whose perceptions have been altered by ritual right. so that uh, they are could be messages to cultists so that uh, as investigators, once you see something that has a uh, particular signature to it, you then try to backtrace it to, okay, of the thousands of people who saw this spam message before the operator of the website identified it as spam and, and deleted it, which one of them was meant to take action on the basis of that? Where were they in the world? Who reads this website? Who, why were they, you know, was there someone in particular who they were trying to reach? And then uh, what you might come up with that after a big, you know, a bunch of data profiling and your hacker person clacking away at the keyboard is this is the person that that instructions was probably meant for. They, you know, match all of the 17 different bullet points on the profile list. It's probably person A, could be person B, or maybe person C, but it's one of these three people and they got a message and they're going to go do something. Go find out what that is and stop them. You can also, of course, assume rather than an unconscious or mystically imminent message that it is actually a code that if, you know, the word Cthulhu appears, it's the fourth word in the, in the spam comment. That means, you know, go kill Professor Angel. If it's the ninth word, that means prepare for the great rising and it could be an actual code and solving the code cryptographically could yield valid information that you can then act on. That's a little less interesting, I think, than um, making it, uh, you know, magically imminent based on the, on the, on the specifics of, of your ritual in, uh, initiation. Right. But you could, but you could certainly imagine it, it happening in a, in a trail of Cthulhu world. And it's, again, it's a reason to stay covert because Delta Green or someone is out there. And if you just send an open message saying, Hey, everyone, the Cthulhu rally is Tuesday in Portland. Let's all meet. What they know is going to happen is the FBI is going to show up and shoot everybody. Right. And what cultists could start to do in the face of that is what uh, white supremacists have started to do to uh, not be banned on Twitter. Uh, weirdly enough, there does seem to be a threat of them. Some of them do get banned. And so <laughs> That's what they, crazy talk. Yeah. No one is ever banned on Twitter. Right. What they've taken to uh, doing is doing word substitution code for all of their favorite vile epithets. So they'll talk, instead of using those vile epithets, they'll use Yahoo will be one particular epithet and Google will be in all of these common words that are used in tech. And so what cultists could be doing, you know, for them, Yahoo could be a Golanac. And, you know, Google could be Ganathanoa and so forth. And they might not have the first letter the same, but yes. cultists aren't that bright, you know. And so you may have to, uh, as part of your mission as a Delta Green agent, is figure out what the latest series of seemingly innocuous code names are that express the real activities of the, uh, you know, cultist chatter on the dark web. Or again, that that's the sort of thing that acts as a confirmatory thing is like, we have reason to suspect that, um, uh, John Raleigh Hines is actually a, uh, Yagalanac cultist or, or some kind of cultist. And then we go on his social media, just like you do after some guy, you know, does something terrorist and you go on his social media and it's like, wow, look at all these go ISIS posts that no one noticed. Um, you go on his website and he's like lots of, you know, 
coded re- references to Bing. And it's like, well, no one would ever talk about Bing on purpose. It must be a mythos thing. And so then you, 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 you hunt, uh, hunt him down. Cause you know, he's a, he's a cultist of some kind. Um, you have another possibility is that Lovecraftian spam is not even the unconscious work of cultists. It's not even the, um, it's not a code. It's not anything. It is just an, uh, a, a thing that happens because, Every kind of human perception, every kind of human activity, every kind of human communication eventually is deformed and horrible because it eventually touches one of the uh, great old ones. And Nyarlathotep, for example, is the thousand faces, and he will always corrupt everything. So once the Internet got big enough, once enough people started sending people enough things, part of those messages touched Nyarlathotep. And so the radar bounce back from Nyarlathotep or the um, imminent effect of Nyarlathotep or whatever is just causing this spam to spontaneously generate. And it's not sent by anyone. It doesn't come from anywhere. It comes from, you know, if you really traced it down, it would come from deep, 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 deep in the dark web where nobody goes except, you know, Chinese uh, government and, um, you know, people that even Yagalanak doesn't want to meet. And, and so you're like, well, what's that about? And Maybe Nyarlathotep is in the form of some guy in the Chinese government, or maybe that's just where the deepest point is. That's just where the deepest uh, well has been drilled that's going to release the Nyarlathotep Balrog, and he comes swarming up out of there because that's what he does. He corrupts human communication and shows us you know, new ways to shout and uh, kill and revel. And that's what the spam is doing. Yeah, so there's a, a server uh, somewhere in northern China that just immunitizes into one of the thousand masks of Neuralathotep. And uh, another possibility, of course, is that the spam is an incantation that uh, sort of on the uh, hundred monkeys principle that at some point enough different people around the world will be reading this comment spam or looking at these uh, uh, Ray-Ban ads with steganography in them or whatever it is. And if enough people are looking at them in enough different places and the stars are right, that's what triggers the great unraveling. And it might even be uh, a case of someone has intentionally created the uh, worm or virus that will uh, do this. They've set their spam comment machine on autopilot and uh, they were dying. So they don't have any incentive to see the world continue to go on. And they, in a final act of murder suicide where the murder victim is everybody, they uh, kill themselves and the, program auto activates and you've got to find the source of that and shut it down before the sky unzips and you see the the eye of uh, Cthulhu behind it. Yeah, that if you know if 100 people are all reading it under the right stellar sign, that's it. But fortunately, quote unquote, when 85 people read it or 100 or 200 people read it and the stars are not quite right, you just get a monstrous zombie outbreak or something. And it's like, oh, good, that's better than the end of the world, but it's still terrible because you've got 200 different loci of this of this mythos activity. So even if you went and you stopped it right now, that would give you a sort of um, uh, the old uh, Friday the 13th show where they would chase around all these things that were stolen from that magic shop. This would be that sort of, uh, you know, uh, linking event is there was a, a big spam release that has triggered all of this craziness all over the world as someone was reading this comment section at the at the moment of of, of near immunitization and the closest mythos thing that they were involved in, they went out and made it happen and they become a vector. Well, uh, th- this discussion is 
got me hankering to go to our site and check out our spam and eliminate it. So I guess uh, while I do that, let's have a commercial and then we'll, when we come back, it will be another segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The alien big cat on the moor, the strangely realistic-looking Fiji mermaid specimen that we have up on the wall tell us we've once more entered the mysterious confines of the Elliptony Hut. This is the hut in which uh, weird conspiracies, things that are unearthly but not necessarily supernatural, lurk. And uh, Patreon backer Neil Dalton has asked us to talk about Whitley Stryber, at one point, outwardly credible-seeming uh, writer about uh, UFO uh, contact, uh, later uh, full-on contactee, uh, but also before that and after that, a uh, horror and genre writer. Uh, Whitley Stryber is someone who sort of uh, uh, trained my teeth in skepticism, because I originally read his book Communion, uh, and after seeing a CBC documentary in which the sober... Uh, CBC, and that would be the even silverer CBC of the 80s, gave its apparent news imprimatur to some of the stuff that he was claiming actually being true. And so when you first read Communion, if you don't have your skeptic hat on, because he's a very good writer, and because he is very good at making his assertions seem credible, you will perhaps uh, accept them as true until you then start to think, oh, but wait a minute, what if he's just lying or deluded and at that <laughs> what point if indeed yeah and at that point uh once you start uh looking at the rest of the field and looking at skeptical uh inquiry you realize that oh wait oh of course you can't just accept things at face value because they're uh in a book from a major mainstream publisher or because for some weird reason the cbc decided to lend credibility to these claims and so, uh, Ken, how did you first become exposed to uh, Whitley Stryber? Presumably not through the CBC. No, it was not through the CBC, oddly enough. Um, I ran into Whitley Strieber, um, which is, I believe, how it's pronounced. It's certainly how it's spelled. I ran into Whitley Strieber in the used section of bookstores when I would go and look for UFO books. And the one book you could always find there was Communion. And I ran into Communion well before I ran into... Uh, Wolfen, which is a terrific novel, and I really encourage people to read that because it's super good. I also am fond of his thriller Black Magic. It's not great, but um, it's got a lot of really good stuff in it, and it probably soaked into Nice Black Agents. I, I wouldn't doubt that at all. And so I read Communion, and it 
first of all, at the time, my hunger was not for personal narratives. My hunger seldom is for personal narratives in Elliptony. I much prefer a view from a height. Uh, your Jacques Vallees, who cast a, a lordly Gallic eye over the whole phenomenon and pronounce on what it means, ideally while smoking a cigarette. And so it was not my brand of vodka even then. And he very rapidly, you know, sort of beclowned himself uh, by going on various programs and, and being sort of obviously grubbing for sales for his book. To his credit, I want to say, he has never said that they were aliens. He's always said they are visitors. So they might be angels or demons or ultra terrestrials or beings from the id. Um, he's, he's never said anything about them being aliens and he's very mad at UFO people who go and try and latch themselves onto the Whitley Strieber train. And I do sort of admire the way that he managed to rewrite all contactee stories after communion that, um, he was, you know, he is a, a big honking nuke in the meme, uh, bombing range. And after communion came out, everyone's aliens looked like big eyed grays. Everyone had rectal probes. Everyone had all the stuff that Strieber wrote about in communion. So just as a, as a, um, uh, as a big swing and meme, I, I hats off to Whitley, but he has, I think fully demonstrated to any rational person that he is bananas in one or another form. When he had a later book after communion that I believe was called, uh, solving the communion enigma or communion inquiries or something like that. And in that book, he says, Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that when the visitors came, they brought dead people with them. Did, did that slip my mind for 20 years until I needed another hook to hang a book on? And it's, it's at that point where it's like, all right, if you were seeing dead people wandering around, that would be in the first book. That's not a, I'm going to hold that for the sequel type revelation. Right. Communion has a veneer of scientific plausibility over it and does not go overtly into uh, mysticism the way that the later stuff does. And so yeah. there's also a psychopomp who shows up when he's at a hotel, I think in Toronto, which mm -hmm. is where you it is. you meet all of your... It's where you meet your finer psychopomps. Yeah, exactly. I meet my psychopomp there. Right. And so he, uh, you know, had revelations delivered to him about, you know, the electron vibrating in front of everyone's forehead and so forth. And so... His name was Michael, but we call him the master of the key. He insists on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some people like a middle initial. Some people like to say master of the key. Some people... It's just how it works. Yeah. But yeah, and, and, the, and the revelations that he gave are the same... Really stupid revelations that all these aliens and Mahatmas and whatnot, you know, not real Mahatma Gandhi, his revelations were fine that the British were awful and should leave. But, um, the, the, you know, the pretend Mahatmas, Helena Blavatsky's, um, uh, ascended masters and great white brotherhoods and whatnot, their revelations are always super trite and super stupid. It's like if you read, you know, real get along with each other, people. Right, yeah, but if you read real religious literature, you know your your Quran and your Bible and your and your you know Baha'i even, their revelations are not sappy. They may be you know sort of obvious. It's like, hey, love your neighbor, don't be a dick. But they're not you know just everyone is vibrating at the same plane as everyone, and we all have an electron, and it's just garbage. It's just, you know, word salad. It, it's just awful. And if you're going to be an alien, get better material before you show up. <laughs> That's just my advice. Yes. 
uh, and it is interesting that, you know, he started out as being a very effective writer. Communion, if you treat it as a horror novel and not as a description of what's going on in reality, I think one of the reasons it seems so compelling and real is because he is so skilled as a horror writer. Right. And yeah. then, you know, later Still on... Still not as good as the Mothman prophecies, though. That's right. a million times better. Of course. But, uh, you know, later on, it starts to become more typical contacty drivel, shall we say. Yeah. And then there, the, yeah, there's very little drivel in communion. There's, there's sort of the terrifying, this is what's happening to me in remote upstate New York. You know, I'm, I'm getting drunk and, and weird aliens show up or weird visitors show up and do awful things to me. And, um, uh, that, that is pretty compelling just as a narration. Right. And it affected, you know, if you went to the wrong hypnotist in that period, yeah. you know, out of the wrong hypnotists, there's a 50 50 <laughs> chance that you were, uh, told that you were abused in a uh, devil cult that's responsible for uh, murdering thousands of babies, but there's no trace of, or uh, you got a Whitley uh, Strieber style uh, grave visitation. And right. uh, neither of those things is a great legacy to uh, have brought into the world. He also, of course, speaking of not great legacies, wrote the book uh, that became The Day After Tomorrow, the uh, Roland Emmerich film. Um, and that, of course, was based on revelations told to him about uh, the master by the master of the key about global warming, that they would cause glaciers. So if you're worried about global glaciation, a la the day after tomorrow, that also <laughs> yeah. is Whitley Strieber's fault. But you can probably um, uh, sell your your glacier proof uh, hat or whatever it is that you bought off Art Bell. So the interesting stuff about uh, his impact on the culture, I guess, is. You can either just use aliens as a, a new variety of scary ghost, the way that the uh, largely uninteresting movie Dark Skies does. If you can just sort of take the premise of that as, let's take a ghost house movie and turn it into an alien abduction movie. And you can do a better job of that in your scenario than the movie does. Yes, there are other movies that have done a better job of that, in fact. Right. So it, it is a sort of interesting, you know, speaking of reskinning, reskinning of horror uh, or the supernatural or fairy, right? If the fairies are also greys or ultra terrestrials, there's a lot of um, rich material in that to uh, creep people out. And the reason that it is uh, creepy is that it, you know, takes the real experience of sleep paralysis and uh, brings the uh, often quite explicit horror imagery that people who suffer from that suffer uh, and brings it out into the real world as something that can come and get you. Would you say that the greys are uh, one of the few new full true monsters of uh, of the 20th century. Oh yeah, no, the Greys are. I would say that the Greys are certainly as important in their way as the Romero zombie was, and I think that the thing that keeps them from being full on monsters in the way that the Romero zombie has is because of the weird genuflection that we have in America and elsewhere to pretending to care what crazy people think. And so it's like, well, this guy was traumatized by aliens. We shouldn't just make them into monsters. We should pretend that that's important and surround them with a sort of high-minded bump. And only very rarely, um, even the X-Files, when they put the greys in, they were very seldom used for terror. They were often used as sort of emblems of mystery, which is, I think, not their ideal use, really. And right. so... As monsters, they are less effective uh, or have been less effectively used than uh, zombies or Cthulhu. I, I wouldn't attribute that to a respect for the mentally ill in pop culture, which we can see lots <laughs> of counterexamples of. Yeah. But I think it's the close encounters of the third kind. Does the 
uh, angelic version of the Greys. Right? Oh, you think uh, you think Spielberg ruined my monster early? Yes. Yeah. I think, and that's why it has that that connotation of you know the the weird alien uh, uh, happy uh, creatures, and so that's why the X Files. I think they like there was an offshoot of the Greys that were actively monstrous, but the Greys themselves were ambiguous and. The idea that, to the extent one can follow X Files mythology at this point, that you know it's, it seems more and more like it's the evil people who corrupted the uh, alien technology rather than the uh, aliens themselves being e- evil and scary. And I guess that's part of the desire to believe that uh, in, a, in savior figures, right? That, right. Yeah. Uh, even though what the Greys are reported as doing is, you know, that's. That's that's sexual assault at the at the very <laughs> yes. they're they're utterly monstrous in Strieber. And I guess we should also, in fairness, give a shout out to uh, Betty and Barney Hill, whose abduction gave Whitley the idea for what his visitors looked like, because they depicted sort of the Ur Gray back in 1965 or whenever it was that they wrote their book. And so he is, you know, whether subconsciously as a great horror writer, recognizing that that was a good story and. If he, you know, had one himself, he would have a good book or if he'd just seen it and it sort of bubbled up in his head or if he cynically said, those are some awesome aliens, I'm going to put them in my book. However, it was that they sort of come from mainstream ufology to mainstream everybody. That's that's Whitley that did it in the same way that you can see flesh eating creatures in movies before Romero makes the zombie the icon that it was in 1968. Right. In both cases, there are sort of prefiguring images, but. It's uh, Strieber who solidifies the Greys, and then Spiel. And now that was actually post Spielberg, though. Wasn't yeah, it? Spielberg was seventy-seven. Right. Yeah. And and I guess that's why it's it's this figure has been more equivocal, is because mm-hmm. the the it's the evil version of the Close Encounters alien who was previously seen to be beatific. And right. uh, so I think that confuses. You know, it's it's like as if they're you know Romero zombies were based on you know. 50s equivalents of Care Bears, right? That there's <laughs> there's no muzzying up of the of the moral framework of the of the imagery the way there is in uh, uh, with the Greys who may or may not be aliens and maybe ultra terrestrials and so uh, and so presumably Spielberg who of course was heavily advised by ufologists on Close Encounters was drawing on the Barney and Betty Hill uh, style aliens too so that they would have entered the meme stream. Uh, from Barney and Betty Hill through ufology through Spielberg and then into uh, Strieber. So his, I guess his authorship of that meme is more about taking something non-monstrous and turning it into a monster, uh, which it is uh, kind of more equivocally remained. Right. I guess the other part is because Strieber, when he's writing communion, it, you can read it as a horror novel but he writes it as a mystery, as a, what is happening to me? What is their message? Why is this happening? And that's a different sort of a, of a, of a, of a casting of, of the same story, because you can, you can look at those events and say, yes, these are horrible monster things that come and mess with you. But because Streber is ironically not making that big a deal of the torture, he's saying, this was really just more of a wake up call and a, how do you do? Yeah. It was like a colonoscopy. I was scheduled for one anyway. Right. You're left with what, what do these enigmatic beings want? Which is not something you ask about zombies. You, they want your brains. That's pretty clear. Um, and so a lot of it may just be that, uh, although the horror undertones are part of what make it grabby in the same way that hell and, and Satan makes a lot of, um, fundamentalist preaching grabby, uh, the real message of, can't we all just get along 
is um, uh, left to be carried, in this case, also by the Greys. And obviously, your fundamentalist preachers have figured out that you don't want to mix your brand that way. And so the the can't we get along is, is Jesus, not devils and whatnot. Right. And the other thing that Struber seemed to have done for a while was to reshape what it was to be a UFO contactee uh, into something more horrible and personal and less philosophical. And then later he comes along and adds all the contactee stuff back in right. with, the, with the meeting with the psychopomp. And so he radically reconfigures all of the cultural baggage surrounding that experience. And then gradually, as he goes along, he basically reverts back to, to the mean. Yeah. And again, if you look at the way that he, he plays with myth in the, in the Wolfen or in the hunger, which is his vampire novel, you can sort of see that he's sort of doing the same thing again, perhaps subconsciously, blah, blah, blah with the grays in communion that he's saying, okay, here's what we know about the grays. Here's what I can, the changes I can ring on this story. And in this case, it happens to me because I'm up in upstate New York being depressed and drunk. And the uh, I think another interesting lens to look at this as then is what if this is basically a spontaneous, non-culturally supported uh, version of uh, the shamanic experience? Uh, I think it's more likely that it's sleep paralysis, <laughs> but uh, it follows that pattern, right? That you yeah, right. Uh, undergo a uh, torment that uh, changes your uh, you physically and emotionally, and then lets you see another world. Uh, well, that's what he's describing, except that you are not in a shamanic culture so that you are not guided by the expectations of the people around you to have a particular sort of version of that transformative experience and to understand it with an existing framework of myth. So instead, you know, whatever weird thing, uh, happened to him in the woods and happens to other people or, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe shamanism is sleep paralysis. Who knows? Uh, it's not, but <laughs> yes. well, for, I mean, for the part purpose of, of this speculation yes. that you could use in a game yes. of fiction, you could then draw that analogy more. And, and it's also apparently not temporal lobe epilepsy, which is the other thing that a lot of people say shamanic experience derives from because Strieber went and had himself tested and it turns out his brain is fine as one would expect again from the author of Wolfen. Right. <laughs> and, you know, with all of his assertions, you then have to add, or so he asserts. Right. Yes. I mean, one assumes that if you, um, uh, well, yeah, this is true. I'm, I have not, I have not examined his medical claims for all I know. He's, he, he's nutty as a, as a German breakfast, but in my theory, you, you don't have to uh, believe that he's lying about his medical records to believe that he's making up nonsense about aliens. Right. It doesn't have to be that particular, uh, possible, uh, answer. And it may be that, you know, there are two sorts of experience, right? There's the experiencer uh, situation where, uh, you know, you, your perception suddenly enter a non, another world spontaneously. And uh, perhaps there's even low grade physical evidence associated with that, that renders it somewhat less subjective. Mm -hmm. And then you describe that. And then other people who then suffer from sleep paralysis incorporate that imagery into their horrifying experience of sleep paralysis. And again, he could have had a legitimate shamanic experience or sleep paralysis or whatever, interpreted it through uh, late night watchings of close encounters as gray alien visitation, presented it in his book, made a ton of money from that book, and then not had any more experiences like that, but still have to publish books. And that's when you meet mysterious men in Toronto who give you material for another book. 
instead of, you know, or say, oh, did I mention that they also brought dead people with them? Because now I have an idea for a book about dead people. Now, when they bring dead people, are they bringing corpses or are they bringing... They're, they're, they're not ghosts. He's very clear that they're not ghosts. And to the extent I say very clear, he says that they're not ghosts. So it sounds like they're bringing corporeal revenants, which is awful. But it might just be that they make a homunculus of a person out of existing matter or and, and ectoplasm are these, or something. Like, people you know, or just yeah, no, they're 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 people that you know who died, and often people whose death you feel bad about in the sense that oh, it was a shame they went to too soon or whatever. It's no one that you're at peace with, right? Once again, the benevolence of these entities is, is brought into question. Yes, I, I I think that from his own testimony, he has made me not pro-gray alien. Not that I ever was, but still. Right, and, yeah. that, uh, and that goes to credibility too, because it's an element of embarrassment, right? If you were just trying to come up with the story that people would respond to the most, you wouldn't come up with that. that that's, <laughs> no. not, that's not a, if you were just a pure maker upper of things for uh, being uh, the purpose of being a charlatan, you would come up with a more appealing thing that they do <laughs> than that, yeah. which, you know, is uh, a drag at a party, if nothing else. At, at the very least. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a complex fellow. Um, obviously, he's uh, he's made a, a good living being a complex fellow. And let lest us forget. The Wolfen is a really good novel, and people should read it. And I think on that note, we have probably milked Whitley Strieber more than anyone except Art Bell and perhaps Whitley Strieber And, and the aliens himself. themselves. Yes, and, yes. well, that's a different milking. Um, although, in fairness, uh, the old guy in Toronto did give him a glass of white fluid to drink, so perhaps it's a beautiful circle of life out there in the ultra-terrestrial world. I don't care... Who I run into in Toronto, I'm not drinking anyone's white fluid. No one's white fluid will be drunk in Toronto or elsewhere. That's the well, Ken and Robin. Not by me. I'm not speaking, psychopomp not speaking promise. to the rest of the city. Right. Anyway, yeah, before this gets of the worse, city. Let, let's wrap right. this one up. <laughs> Hell yeah, how dare you lead us down this primrose path, Whitley Strieber. <laughs> no, come not in that form. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Art Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such hallowed patrons as... Stephen Hammond. Todd W. Olson. Bill Sundwall. Fred Kish. And John Kingdon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>